Welcome to episode 30, the truth about the historical reliability of the New Testament. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on Facebook or Twitter and the topic of the Federal Reserve, the government shutdown, birthright citizenship, abortion, vaping, or gun control comes up, please share the Truth Quest episode on that topic. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down to the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. And if you're feeling generous, please consider supporting the show financially. All donations will be used to expand the reach of the show. See the show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for the link to the patronage page. The easiest way to stay up to date on the podcast is to subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play Music. It's also available on Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and also on YouTube. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. For regular listeners, you know that every fifth episode or so, I tackle a Christian apologetics topic. This is the sixth installment. I tackled the resurrection of Jesus Christ in episode 5, God and Evil in episode 10, Prayer in episode 15, The Life of Jesus in episode 22, The Judeo-Christian Tradition in episode 26, and today, The Historical Reliability of the New Testament. When I first started studying Christian apologetics, someone gave me a copy of the book I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Frank Turek and Norman Geisler. If you read just one book this year and you are curious about Christianity or looking to bolster your current faith, or for that matter, you are a skeptic of Christianity, I cannot encourage you enough to read this book. On top of that ringing endorsement, I have to say one of the most profound insights I ever got into Christianity came from chapters 9 through 12, which covers the historical reliability of the New Testament. The first time I read it, my mind was blown. Why hadn't anyone ever told me about this before? Much of what I discuss in today's episodes comes from those three chapters. I hope you found it as profound as I did. So for starters, if you want to gain some perspective on today's topic, I recommend that you go back and listen to episodes 5 and 22, uh, the one about the resurrection and the one about Jesus Christ's life. When historians are evaluating the authenticity of a historical document, they look for several things, including is the testimony early, meaning was it soon after the event? Is there eyewitness testimony? Is there corroborating evidence from archaeology or other writers? Is there testimony from multiple independent eyewitness sources? Are the eyewitnesses trustworthy? Does the testimony uh, include embarrassing details to the, the author? And is there enemy attestation? So let's walk through the New Testament using this criteria. So let's start with early testimony. All the New Testament books were written before AD 100, so that's within 70 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. One of the ways we know this is three early church leaders, Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp, quoted passages from the majority of the New Testament books or letters between the years of AD 95 and AD 110. In actuality, most of the books were likely written within 40 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. We know this because there is no mention in any of them of the destruction of the temple in Israel in AD 70. So remember, Jesus predicted that the temple would be destroyed. The temple was the centerpiece of the Jewish community. Its destruction was considered a national tragedy, far greater than Pearl Harbor or 9-11. The New Testament writers would certainly be aware of its destruction, and the chance that none of them reference it seems highly unlikely. 
In fact, many of the books were likely written prior to 68 AD, just 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. How can we make this contention? Because the execution of Paul in AD 68 and Jesus' brother James in AD 62 are not mentioned either. The book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome and no mention of the death of James. If Acts was written before 62 AD, then the book of Luke was written before then because Luke reminds the original recipient of Acts, a guy named Theophilus, that he had written him earlier. Luke addressed this same guy in the book of Luke. So if the book of Luke was written by AD 60, then the book of Mark was written before then because, as most scholars agree, Mark's gospel is likely one of the eyewitness sources that Luke claims to have used. When you think about this idea of early testimony, consider some other ancient biographies, such as Alexander the Great. It was written hundreds of years after his death, but found to be generally reliable by historians, but the New Testament written during the lifetime of eyewitness received scrutiny? Think about the Quran. Muhammad claims to have been told what to write. Only one man, as opposed to many who wrote the New Testament? Yet that's enough evidence to accept it as authentic. Seems like a double standard to me. Let's look at the second and third methodologies used by historians to determine the authenticity of a historical document or a historical account. Eyewitness testimony and testimony from multiple independent eyewitness sources. The gospel accounts of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. Additionally, we know Peter was an eyewitness. Luke, of course, interviewed eyewitnesses to write his accounts of the life of Jesus. Other witnesses include Jesus' entourage, including a number of women, some of whom witnessed the resurrection. Paul mentions 14 people by name who he claimed were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, the 12 apostles himself and James. He also claimed that he was seen by over 500 people. Some of the witnesses' claims can be found in the following verses. Acts chapter 2, verse 32, chapter 3, verse 15, chapter 4, verse 18 through 20, chapter 5, verses 30 through 32, chapter 10, verses 39 through 40. In 1 Corinthians, look in chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. In 2 Peter, you can see in chapter 1, verse 16. In 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And in the book of John, chapter 19, verses 33 through 35, and chapter 20, verses 24 through 30. Also, consider Paul's testimony before King Agrippa, who calls Paul insane. This is in Acts chapter 26, verse 24 through 28. Paul says to the king, essentially, you know that what I'm saying is true. See, the reason he can say that is because the events of Christianity were common knowledge. The book of Acts is quite a remarkable piece of history. Scholars applaud Luke for his meticulous attention to detail. This is largely due to the dozens of facts from the book that have been confirmed by historical and archaeological research. This includes the proper naming of ports, the correct naming of languages spoken in different regions, geographic and topographical references about rivers, synagogues, and altar locations, distances between cities, he talked about shipping lanes, he correctly named political officials, he correctly identified methods of travel to certain regions, local superstitions, and navigating certain regional wind conditions even. 
By proving that Luke's account in Acts is true, we can logically surmise that Matthew and Mark's accounts are true as well, given that they tell some of the same stories. The book of John contains a plethora of historically confirmed or historically probable details in addition to accounts of several intimate private conversations with Jesus. The location of Jacob's well, the distance between Bethany and Jerusalem is correctly identified, the composition of the Sanhedrin, the five colonnades at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus' rejection by disciples after he his eat my flesh comment, uh, Jewish believers wanting to stone Jesus, the charge of him being demon-possessed, uh, Mary wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, the name of the high priest's servant that got his ear cut off, women were the first to discover the missing body, Mary mistaking Jesus as the gardener, the strange detail about the spear piercing Jesus' side and out came blood and water, all unlikely to have been made up. That last fact is actually a known medical condition that would occur in someone in a crucifixion situation. A sack of watery fluid would gather around the heart. It's a condition known as pericardium. John, of course, would not have known about that condition. On top of all that evidence, there are five or six events in the book of John that are corroborated by Josephus' historical commentaries. So when you look just at the books of John, Luke, and Acts, there are at least 140 details that appear to be authentic. In addition, the New Testament also has references to at least 35 people who have been confirmed as historical by archaeology or from non-Christian sources. This list includes people like Agrippa I and Agrippa II, Felix, Pilate, Caiaphas, Annas, Herodias, and several of the Herods. As the author of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist says time and again, I don't have enough faith to question the authenticity of the New Testament, specifically these three books and those that were used as references by Luke. So we have examined early testimony, eyewitness testimony, and testimony from multiple independent eyewitness sources. Now let's examine the trustworthiness of the eyewitnesses. When determining the trustworthiness of the New Testament eyewitness or authors, the overarching consideration you need to focus on here is what their testimony cost them. They were rejected by traditional Jewish society for abandoning the rituals of the Jewish religion. They were persecuted, tortured, and killed. Eleven out of the twelve disciples were martyred. Peter was crucified, supposedly upside down. James was stoned to death. Paul was beheaded. It's been said that people are willing to die for a lie that they think is true, but no one, especially multiple people, are willing to die for a lie that they know is a lie. I want you to marinate on that sentence for just a minute. People are willing to die for a lie that they think is true. So think suicide bombers who think they're going to go to paradise, or mass suicide with cults is usually a similar situation. But no one is willing to die for a lie that they know is a lie. Some other things to consider that act to validate the trustworthiness of the testimony. Some of the details about the resurrection are hard to attribute to the imagination. Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Remember, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the council that sentenced Jesus to death. You think if that fact was false, the whole resurrection story would not have been disputed? The first four witnesses to the resurrection were women who at the time in the ancient world could not even testify in court. For crying out loud, Mary Magdalene was previously known to be crazy or demon-possessed. Why put her in the story at all unless the story is true? Remember all the historical figures I mentioned earlier? If that was made up, the story could have been easily disputed. 
Also, the New Testament writers provided divergent details, meaning they did not report the facts exactly the same when they wrote about the same event. Think about it. If in a court of law, a judge hears two or three witnesses say the same exact thing, what's the first thing that crosses his mind? Collusion. Exactly. It is actually very common for witnesses to remember events slightly differently. In this case, the story as a whole is the same, which is what stands the test of time. How about the claim that Jesus appeared to the apostles and 500 others after the resurrection? That's an awfully bold statement to make, especially in the same town where the execution occurred. Don't you think there would be some record of someone refuting the resurrection if that wasn't true? What about the fact that the New Testament writers abandoned their old way of life following their brief time with Jesus? No more animal sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus taught them that they were forgiven by his death and resurrection. The law of Moses was no longer binding. The strict adherence to the Sabbath, sundown Friday to nightfall on Saturday, was disregarded, even though in their time doing so was considered punishable by death. It was replaced with Sunday as the day of worship. Just the general belief in Jesus as the Messiah, to say the least, was controversial because it was thought for centuries that the Messiah would be a military leader, certainly not a sacrificial lamb that didn't even fight for his own life. Baptism was the new covenant versus circumcision, which was under the old covenant. The taking of communion as an act of remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. All these things were counter to the culture in which these Jewish men and women formerly participated in. What about the inclusion of embarrassing details in the New Testament story? The idea being that if you are making up a story, you would make yourself and the hero subject look as good as possible. The New Testament writers included embarrassing details about themselves. They were portrayed at times as dim-witted, cowardly, doubters, inept. You don't make yourself look bad if you are making up a story. The New Testament writers included embarrassing details and difficult sayings by Jesus. His own family thought he was nuts. He was deserted by a number of followers after mentioning the eating of my flesh and drinking of my blood. Some Jews wanted to stone him for blasphemy. He was called a drunkard, demon-possessed, and a madman. You don't make the hero of a fairy tale out to be any of these things. The New Testament writers left in demanding and some would say impossible to follow sayings of Jesus. Consider the Sermon on the Mount. Lust equals adultery? Yikes. If someone strikes you, turn the other cheek? What? Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you? Who does that? Do not store up treasures on earth? How can you say that? you got to get what you can. As we draw to a close, the last point I want to make is to address enemy attestation, meaning are there non-Christian secular writers at the time that either corroborate or dispute the story of Jesus' life and resurrection? First of all, I find the silence of the Sanhedrin of particular interest. Other than mentioning the attempt to bribe the soldiers who supposedly were guarding Jesus' tomb, there is no biblical record of the religious leaders at the time disputing the resurrection. Their silence speaks volumes. With all the people named who supposedly saw the resurrected Jesus, they were unable to get any of those folks to recant their eyewitness testimony. There are 10 known non-Christian writers who mention Jesus within 150 years of his life. Josephus is the most famous of those writers. And when you piece together all their writings, it is clear that Jesus Christ lived, was a virtuous man, had a brother named James, claimed to be the Messiah, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, after which the earth shook, his disciples thought he rose from the dead, 
They were willing to die for that belief, and Christianity spread throughout the known world. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I hope this was helpful. For the practicing Christian, I hope it bolsters your faith and grants you the boldness that the witnesses of Jesus' life had. For those of you who are tire-kicking, checking out this thing called Christianity, I hope this information will convince you to continue your pursuit. And for my skeptic friends, can we at least agree that the evidence of the New Testament's historical reliability is pretty strong? Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.